Blog Talk Radio. Given what most Americans believe, the next statement may be more shocking than any previous. The fact is, the United States is not a country, but a corporation contractually created by the Constitution. Your state is a country, per the law, and your original citizenship is of that country. Our founders instituted themselves to be first and foremost citizens of their respective states. As of 1787, those states already had formed a union, and they created the Constitution for the purpose of perfecting that union in forming a national government. They did not intend that the new nation have any jurisdiction or powers over the states or their citizens that were not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. They stated this point quite clearly in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution. They granted the United States exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may become the seat of the government of the United States, our District of Columbia, and to exercise authority over all places purchased by the consent of the states. And that is all. The framers further secured the rights of the people with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments in the Bill of Rights. In the Ninth, they established that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And in the Tenth, they made clear that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The only way the federal government can have any jurisdiction beyond these constitutional clauses is by written permission or contract. Which leads us to another piece of the puzzle, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1868 following the Civil War. As barbaric as it may sound today, the black slaves prior to the conclusion of the Civil War were legally considered to be property with none of the rights or privileges of free-born people only duties. The money interests took advantage of America's desire to free the slaves and found a way to use the swiftly adopted post-war constitutional amendments to enslave all of the people. The deceit is in the wording of both the 13th and 14th Amendments. You will note that the 13th Amendment provides that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. But why the emphasis on involuntary servitude? Isn't it the same thing as slavery? Sure it is. But they had to mention the concept of involuntary servitude because they wished to retain another type of slavery, voluntary servitude. Voluntary servitude is an ancient and established concept. It was the way serfs became subjects to their lords during feudal times in England and other European countries. It was a way for free men to earn a living at a time when all property was held by a select few, and thus anyone who wanted to farm and support their family had first to agree to be subject to a lord of the land. Our forefathers hated this concept and designed our Constitution to exclude titles of nobility, making all Americans sovereigns. The 14th Amendment turned the intention of the founders on its ear by making voluntary servitude a requirement for former slaves to gain the rights already guaranteed to free-born United States citizens. 
When the slaves were released from their involuntary servitude following the war, their status was changed from that of being property to that of being a person. But being a person still entitled them to none of the rights associated with citizenship. So the 14th Amendment ostensibly was written to provide the former slaves with the same constitutional rights of freeborn American citizens, but only if they agreed first to become subject to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, making oneself paramountly, that is, first subject to the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States, however, limits access to parts of the Bill of Rights, as we'll explain in a moment. But first remember, anyone who voluntarily subjects himself to the laws or jurisdiction of another is, in every way, obligated to abide by the terms of any contracts or laws established by whomever establishes the rules of the contract. In simple terms, this meant that the former slaves became subjects first to the United States and secondly to the state in which they lived. They had no sovereignty whatsoever. This status had never existed in the United States prior to that time. The 14th Amendment created a new class of citizenship in the United States, a second-class citizenship. Up until 1868, every American was a paramount citizen of their state, and by virtue of that, also a citizen of the United States, with full individual sovereignty as guaranteed by Amendments 9 and 10 in the Bill of Rights. But so-called naturalized citizens, or 14th Amendment citizens, are paramountly subject to all laws of the United States, and, having no status as freeborn citizens, have no access at all to the unenumerated rights retained for the people by Articles 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights. That's because, in order to get any rights at all, they had to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, which left them no unenumerated rights. The only rights they had were those specifically written into the Constitution. The sad tragedy of America today is that all U.S. citizens, regardless of race, are now 14th Amendment slaves due to contracts with the government of the United States through Social Security, birth certificates, driving licenses, citizenship statements, tax forms, and many other documents. The true paramount citizenship that all Americans deserve is that of their respective state, which is a sovereign citizenship. Such status would exempt them from federal and state income taxes, as well as property and inheritance taxes. This sovereign citizenship was the status held by our forefathers. Now, if you're still thinking that the U.S. government needs to have a central bank and collect income tax or it will collapse, think again. Over two-thirds of the federal government's income is derived from sources other than income tax. There is even evidence suggesting that none of your income tax is used by the government. Fees, excise taxes, tariffs, sales taxes, and other forms of income have easily supported the U.S. budget in the past and could easily support it now. We have done without a national bank for large stretches of our history, and the U.S. Treasury is perfectly capable of printing and managing a money supply. In fact, the only constitutionally sanctioned currency is backed by gold or other precious metals. This is a far more stable form of currency and is the type of money the Treasury was designed to handle.
The government was doing so well collecting money under these original laws that it had amassed a huge surplus by the time this cartoon was penned a hundred years later in 1887, when there still was no income tax collected at all. Up to this point, we have shown you how the money interests have, one, established the Federal Reserve System, and two, exploited a second class of citizenship created by the 14th Amendment for other purposes. And we have mentioned a few names involved in the creation of the Fed. But there are other organizations working for our economic enslavement as well, along with other extremely rich and powerful international bankers, those who support the Fed have created a global movement to centralize economic power in various puppet organizations that preach peace and stability through some variation of socialism, but act aggressively to draw nations into a web of foreign debt and servitude to their agenda. The United Nations, the World Monetary Fund, and the Council on Foreign Relations are all committed to an agenda of world domination through manipulation of economic power. The Council on Foreign Relations openly admit to being a private club, yet it is the primary recruiting post in both international banking and the federal government of the United States. Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, John Foster Dulles, Dean Rusk, Alger Hiss, Robert S. McNamara, and every president since FDR, with the exception of John Kennedy, have been members of this exclusive club where super financiers and your elected representatives can mix freely and plan the next step in the consolidation of power in a new world order. Who been lying king to you? 
pocket watch it like kangaroos Tell these clowns we ain't amused Man, the clips for that monkey business Four, five, got changed for you Motorcades when we came through Presidential with the planes too One better get you with the residential Undefeated with the cane too I said no to the Super Bowl You need me, I don't need you Every night we in the end zone Tell the NFL we in stadium too Last night was a fucking zoo Stay diving in a pool of people Ran through Liverpool like a fucking beetle Smoking real glue like it's fucking legal Tell the Grammys fuck that over A shit Have you ever seen a crowd going ape shit? process of law is one of those majestic, important, but very difficult to define terms that appears twice in the Constitution. It appears in the Fifth Amendment and applies to the national government, and it appears in the Fourteenth Amendment, which applies to the state governments. In the context of law enforcement, by and large, what it means is we have to treat criminal defendants fairly. We have to give them notice of charges that are brought against them, We have to give them an opportunity to defend themselves. We typically have to give them all sorts of other procedural protections like the ability to subpoena witnesses in their favor and bring them into court. Uh, We have to have an impartial magistrate, impartial jury. Now, some of these specific protections appear elsewhere in the Constitution as well. For example, a lot of the trial protections appear in the Sixth Amendment. But the general concept of due process of law um, applies very much in the criminal context, and it's been used on a number of occasions to, um, to invalidate various things the police have done. Defining due process is very difficult. Really, due process um, 
is similar to the beauty is in the eye of the beholder concept. That is, really, the due process clause means whatever a majority of the members of the Supreme Court say it means at any given time. And they can change their minds from time to time. In the late 19th century, what it meant was protecting people from economic regulation. You couldn't have minimum wage, you couldn't have maximum hours, working conditions sort of things, because that violated people's basic right to freedom of contract. In the 20th century, it got much more into personal rights, like uh, the right to privacy, like the right to abortion, the right to use birth control, the right to marry. And today it's probably being used uh, in equal protection and due process are being used in areas like same-sex marriage and the rights of transgender people. So it really evolves with society. And that's really appropriate if you think about the Constitution and what effect it should have on society. That is, there's no great moral claim that the views of a group of people that met in 1789 and 1791 should govern our lives today. And if the meaning of the Constitution were static, then I think there would be much more of a need to amend the Constitution or even have a new constitutional convention. But the meaning of the Constitution evolves over time. And so more contemporary understandings of what are fundamental rights are brought into the constitutional meaning through the clauses like the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause, clauses that are vaguer, that aren't very specific about the structure and organization of the government. And so you get this sort of more contemporary understanding of what rights people ought to have. And that applies also in the law enforcement context, where what, is it, what, what might not have been considered an excessive punishment 200 years ago is now considered an excessive punishment, or what might not have considered a privacy right 200 years ago is now considered a privacy right. And so it's clauses like the Due Process Clause and other vague constitutional provisions allow for the sort of evolution of our understanding of rights and let our Constitution stay fresh and relevant to a current situation. In the context of the Fifth Amendment, as I explained due process to police officers, it means that an encounter between the state and the citizen must be transparent. It must be con they must be consistent. It must reflect consistency. It must be fair. The citizen should have an understanding of what's happening to him or her. The citizen should have an opportunity to defend him or, self, him or herself, to respond to the encounter. And I think when, when you have, when an encounter is marked by those characteristics, there has been due process of law. It has been orderly. It has been pursuant to a scheme. It has not been capricious, and it has not been arbitrary. Due pro the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment is a constitutional articulation of our collective idea of fairness. So if the Constitution, at least constitutional criminal law, means anything, it means that a system of justice should be fair. So oftentimes people equate due process with a concept called fundamental fairness. And fundamental fairness exists on two registers. The first register is called substantive due process. That means the thing is, 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 is actually fair, substantively, that, 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 there were, that the process was not so corrupted that a person did not get a fair hearing, a fair trial. Uh, the second register is procedural due process. 
procedural due process means that there are these processes, like a trial, like preliminary hearings, uh, like all of the sorts of, of things that lead up to a substantive determination of uh, guilt or acquittal. And that if there is a problem with the procedural due process as well, then that is a violation of the Constitution. Because the notion goes that it's, it's difficult to ascertain truth in some absolute medical, metaphysical sense. That is to say, it's difficult to ascertain the truth in some absolute metaphysical sense. So we get at our notions of truth through processes which we think are fair processes. Now, there are many ways you can get at the truth. There was a time in American history where we did things like weight people's feet, put them in a well, and say, if they drown, God is telling us that they were guilty. If they're innocent, God will save them. That's one method of ascertaining the truth. Not my particular chosen method, but that's one method. Another way is to engage in all of these safeguards at trial. And the, the analysis is that it might not get to absolute truth all the time, but it's going to be pretty close. If you do A, B, C, and D, and you do them properly, then we're going to weed out the injustice. So that's the notion of procedural due process. And so the implication is that if you don't follow the procedures, then there's something unjust about the eventual conviction. Substantive due process is, is the guarantee that you will not be treated in a certain way, that certain things won't happen to you. For example, um, I have a substantive due process right to bodily integrity. The state can't come along and chop off my hand. It doesn't make a difference why the state wants to do that. It doesn't make a difference what procedure the state uses before it decides to chop off my hand. I've got a substantive due process right to be free from excruciating pain, to be free from having my bodily parts amputated. So substantive due process tells the government there are certain things you cannot do no matter how much you want to do them, no matter how carefully you go about trying to do it. Well, there's no, there, there are no exceptions to the notion of, of due process. Due process, like every other term in constitutional law, is interpretive and highly contestatory. So what violates substantive due process? This is a big issue in constitutional law. So the notion is that a substantive, due pro a substantive due process violation will be found where there is something that shocks the conscious, that is so antagonistic to our basic notions of fundamental fairness that it cannot stand. Now, so those are pretty words and flowery words, but the truth is the Supreme Court has not found a substantive violation in many, 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 many decades. Right? So the last substantive due process violation is the case that I learned when I was in law school in a case that I teach now, and it's called our, uh, Rochin versus California, and it's a, a case where a person was forcibly brought into a hospital and had their stomach pumped um, by doctors, uh, but against their will so that they would regurgitate drugs. And the court said, too much. That shocks the conscious. You can't 
just haul people in and, and do things to make them throw up all over the place to get some drugs. There may be more uh, humane ways to do it. Uh, one can let nature take its course. Eventually those, those drugs will come out uh, one way or the other, but to make people throw up or to engage in surgery and cut it out of people's a abdomens, that shocks the conscious. Uh, but the court hasn't really found much else to shock the conscious. Almost all due processes due process cases now fall on a procedural register. And courts, I think, are more apt to deal with procedural rules as opposed to stuff, substantive standards. So a standard is something like shocks the conscious, where a rule is something like, did you give the Miranda warnings? Yes, no. You have a much more clear answer. The basic requirement of due process in law enforcement, of course, is that the law enforcement has to respect whatever rights there are that are spelled out by state and local law and by federal law. So if there's going to be a procedure that's going to go on, then the, the, the uh, procedural rights have to be respected. But due process um, and similar co sorts of unclear clauses like unreasonable search and unreasonable seizure, for example, uh, are interpreted to protect against things like excessive force their requirement that uh, that um, government give medical care to people that are in custody, whether it's uh, pre-arrest, after arrest, um, after conviction, those sorts of rights uh, um, that are related also to the Eighth Amendment, freedom of, from cruel and unusual punishment. All of those rights sort of work together to create a system of, of uh, proper treatment of people in the custody of the government. Like the people don't need it no more 
Till when she hear that good music, she hold me closer She groovy now, I know she feeling it for sure She move to me and rest her bed upon my shoulder Soothingly, she tell me if it turn up the song Have you ever, have you ever been in love? Now bad vibes can't stop this good vibration, yeah Oh yeah, yeah, yeah That's the positive vibes that we creating, yeah Sounds that make you feel right, we keep it blazing Forever shining this light, we keep it blazing, blazing Forever shining this light, ooh yeah Every Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L. On the new Evolution Radio Network. Peace to the gods. What's happening? Right here on the bottom line. The New Evolution Radio Network. Today is Sunday, the 26th of June. Um, I'd like to welcome you to the show. We're going to have a pretty lengthy show tonight. Um, we're talking tonight about Roe versus Wade and the recent Supreme Court case, Dobbs versus Jackson. I wanted to talk about this tonight. Because this deals directly with a lot of the things that uh, we have talked over over the course of maybe the last ten years or so, at least since I've been on the scene. Um, 
and I want to make sure that this is overstood by people. Um, I think that a lot of people have a false understanding um, of how this whole system works. Um, and being that, it behooves us to address it. So i like to start off by saying that um, we will take a very unbiased approach tonight, very in-the-middle-liberal approach. Um, you know, I, I, I don't swing to the left, and I ain't swinging to the right on this. I'm right in the middle on this. Because, uh, <clears throat> frankly, you know, it takes two people to create a child. That's, that's first and foremost. And then second of all, um, you know, if you're going to stop a woman's right, you know, then you got to stop a man's right, right? It's, it's fortunately, uh, we live in a type of society where this type of stuff is done. Um, <clears throat> but I've always been told that if you infringe on my rights, you infringe on your own rights, right? So we must remember Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood was originally called the Negro Project, which was founded by Margaret Sanger. Okay. Margaret Sanger was a white supremacist. She was a eugenicist. She believed that black babies needed to be killed to preserve the white race. The Roe versus Wade ruling was a continuation of that program. Okay. Now, um, Margaret Sanger, she said some pretty wild shit, but one of the things that she said was, when she's speaking to the KKK, she gave the eugenics approach um, to breeding for the what she called the, quote, gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks. Those human weeds which threatened the blooming of the finest flowers of the American civilization. She looked at black people, black babies, in the fetus as something that um, needed to be eliminated. She looked at it as a stock. Now, and, 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 this, this has to be said. Y'all give me just a second. So she, she looked at black folks as a stock, all right? And, you know, the funny thing is, is a constitutionally protected right is supposed to protect every person, natural person, right, that comes out of a womb, right? In 1939, there was a a letter done uh, that was sent to Dr. C.J. Gamble, Sanger, and it urged him to get over his reluctance to hire um, a full-time Negro physician. As the colored Negroes, he said, or they said in the letter, can get closer to their own members and more or less lay their cards on the table, which means that their ignorance and superstitions 
right? Would would be essentially um, absorbed by their own community. Okay. So this was her approach. Her approach was you need to infiltrate, gain trust by using trusted sources in the community. Okay. So she used people like Mary McLaughlin. She used W. E. B. Du Bois. She used uh, Reverend Adam Clayton Powell. Okay. And other people to represent this Negro project as a solution to poverty and high birth rates. Okay. So Planned Parenthood is where your abortion clinics begin. It's where they begin killing off black babies. Okay. So today, you know, we talk about who's important is cause for Planned Parenthood to claim the lack of access, right, while black women um, access abortion clinics at five times the rate of white women. This is a fact. So abortion kills more black lives than all other causes of death combined. Now, white liberals and progressives and um, people who are quote allies, right, um, we have black artists and influencers shit like that um, they promote black death right and we say oh well black lives matter now here's here's the deal right and we have to be very specific about what we're talking about tonight because I'm not going to sugarcoat the shit what we're talking about is <clears throat> Unborn children as constitutional persons or not. Okay. Now, in Roe versus Wade, the state of Texas argued that a fetus is a person within the language and the meaning of the 14th Amendment. To which Justice Harry uh, Blackman responded, he said, "Quote: If this suggestion." Of personhood is established The appellant's case of course Collapses for the fetus Right to life Would be then guaranteed specifically by the Amendment right? Now Justice Blackman Then came to the conclusion that The word person as used in the 14th Amendment does not include An unborn child Now I want you to remember that When they talk about person They are really talking about corporations Let's just get that straight Now It is argued that unborn children Are indeed persons Within the language of the meaning of the 14th And the 5th amendments Okay So there is no constitutional text Explicitly holding Unborn children to be or not to be persons But this particular argument Okay This particular argument Is based on historical understanding, context, and practices. The structure of the Constitution, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court. So specifically, it's argued, right, that the Constitution does not confer upon the federal government a specifically enumerated power to grant or deny what they call personhood. Under the 14th Amendment, but rather the power to recognize or deny 
unborn children as the holder of rights and duties, which has been historically exercised by the state. Okay? It's a state right is what they tell you. Now, the Roe opinion in the Supreme Court case implicitly recognized this function of what they call state sovereignty. Okay, so states did exercise this power, and they held unborn children to be persons, corporations, under the property, tort, and criminal law of several states. So it was an equity issue, y'all. It, that, that's what it came down to. It came down to be an issue of equity, okay? Because it was under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, right? And the 14th Amendment basically compelled federal protection of unborn persons, okay? Now, to the extent that uh, Justice Blackman examined what they call substantive law, right, um, he found basically, you know, uh, he, he said a lot of things in his dissenting opinion, but um, his findings were, were erroneous, right? And there's a whole amount, he had a lot of judicial errors there. As I'm sure you're here tonight, when, when I play this case that everybody's so up in arms about, there are errors that can occur. Okay? But as a matter of procedure, okay, according to the due process clause, in the standards, okay, which are recognized in the Fifth Amendment and jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade should be held null and void as to the rights of interest of unborn persons. This is what they said. It's not my words, it's theirs. Okay. Now, um, we got to talk about. <laughs> Niggas love to play on these fall lines, but we we, we got to talk about corporate personhood, right? Because you can't and, and and listen, I'm I'm talking from a very unbiased opinion about this because the truth is is that you're not going to understand my opinion on this. I'm just going to tell you what the law says, right? Like my opinion doesn't matter, right? Not, you know, um, but what does matter is what is the law on this, and so. Corporate personhood or juridical personality is the legal notion that a juridical person, such as a corporation, separately from its associated human beings, like owners, managers, or employees, has at least some of the legal rights and responsibilities that are enjoyed by natural persons. Did you see that? So the issue is not um, – the issue here is really not about abortion. The issue here is whether or not you're considering a fetus to be a corporate person or a natural person. See, in jurisprudence, a natural person is a physical person in the Commonwealth countries, right? It's a natural entity. It is a person, i.e. in legal meaning, one who has legal personality, right, that has an individual human being. Um, as opposed to a legal person, which may be private, like a, a business entity, a non-governmental organization, uh, i.e. government organizations. Okay, So I need you all to understand that some of this also has to do with cloning. Y'all want to go that deep with it. Right? So historically, a human being was not necessarily a natural person, but in some jurisdictions where slavery existed, 
Right? People were subjects. They were property. Right? And you were you were the property of a slave owner rather than a person. I don't I don't know if y'all know this or not, but antebellum still exists today. So according to Maria Helena uh, Dinez, an individual or natural person is quote the human being considered as subject of rights and obligations. Every human being is endowed with a legal personality and therefore is subject of law. So according to Silvio de Salvo Venosa, he said that legal personality is a projection of the intimate psychic personality of each person. It is a social projection of the psychic personality with legal consequences, he says. However, in addition, the law also gives personality to other entities formed by groups of people or assets. These are called legal persons. So you do understand a robot to be a legal person, right? You do understand that uh, uh, they technically can look at an animal like a legal person. I mean, they look at you like chattel property anyways. Okay. Now, in many cases, fundamental human rights are implicitly granted only to natural persons. So, for example, the ninth, or excuse me, the nineteenth amendment to the United States Constitution, right, which states that a person cannot be denied the right to vote based on their sex, or Section 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, basically, which guarantees equal rights, right, and equality, applies to natural persons only. Now, another example of distinction between natural and legal persons is that a natural person can hold public office, but a corporation cannot. So a corporation or a non-governmental organization can, however, file a lawsuit against you, right? They can own property as a legal person, but it doesn't put them over natural persons, okay? So usually a natural person penetrates a crime, right? But legal persons may also commit crimes, too. Okay, this is why you ever, you ever seen a, a corporation commit a crime and nobody ever gets in trouble? They just get fined because it's not the CEO that's on trial. It's the corporation. It's it, it's a it's a play that may go over your head. Now, back to corporate personhood, right? Because in the Middle Ages, if we you, know, we, you can go back as far as India. Right, early 800 BC, right, which granted legal personhood to um, guild-like entities that operated in the public interest. Right, um, the late Roman Republic granted legal personhood to municipalities. They gave it to public work organizations, um, public services, voluntary associations, um, even the Catholic Church. So the diverse collegia had different rights and responsibilities that were independent of the individual members. See, some of this gets into religion too, right? But church and state is supposed to be separate, right? Now, um, you know, and we have to remember, right? All of this information goes back a lot further than Roe versus Wade. Okay. In the Middle Ages, uh, judicial persons were chartered either as corporations or as foundations in order to facilitate what they call collective perpetual ownership of assets beyond um, the founder's lifespan or to avoid fragmentation and disintegration that would basically come from personal property inheritance law. Okay. Then later you had incorporation, which was um, – 
which was advocated as an efficient and secure mode of economic development. Okay. So the word corporation itself derives from the Latin word corpus, right, which means body. And judicial personhood is often assumed in medieval writings about the Renaissance period. Uh, European jurists routinely held that churches and universities chartered by the government could gain property, enter into contracts, they could sue, and then they could be sued, independent of its members. Okay, So the government or the pope, right, granted religious organizations, the power of perpetual secession, uh, church property, essentially, would not revert to the local lord or the, the fiefdom. Or any of that right upon the death of a church member. But some town charters explicitly granted medieval towns the right of self-governance. Okay? So commercial endeavors were not among entities that incorporated in the, uh, the medieval era. Okay? So you can go from, from country to country and you can look at, for, for instance, in India. You, you can look there at what a legal entity is, a legal person under Indian law. Right, uh, managing bodies, um, several other non-human entities, or what they call legal persons. Right, court cases regarding uh, corporate shareholders, uh, companies, all of that shit they call legal persons. So they essentially are calling a baby in a womb a legal person. They're liking likening a baby. To a corporation. Now you have to also look at follow. You got to follow the money too, right? Because if you get rid of abortion rights, it's a stock issue. It's a stock issue. Literally, it's an issue about stocks. Okay, body politics, trust the states. Okay, this deals with mosques. It deals with hospitals. It deals with universities. It deals with colleges. It deals with banks. It deals with railways. It deals with municipalities. It deals with babies. Okay. The Fourteenth Amendment gave equal protection as it applied to corporations. So you need to understand that the Emancipation Proclamation made you a corporation. It made you a corporate body. It made you a corporate body. So the 14th Amendment, without the court having actually made a decision or issued a written opinion on that point, made you a corporate body. So this was the first time that the Supreme Court was reported to hold that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause granted constitutional protections to corporations as well as natural persons. You see, the, the, the Equal Protection Clause, you don't have to be a 14th Amendment citizen for the 14th Amendment to protect a natural person. It gave equal protection of the law, you see, because the fact is is that under – and I've told y'all this before. People don't seem to, to, to hear me when I tell them shit, but the federal government is essentially what keeps the state in check. I mean people are upset about uh, uh, Dobbs versus Jackson, right, and now it's on the states. Right, because you if you see the writing on the wall, it look a lot like states are come, trying to come from up under the fourteenth amendment. Okay? Now, um the fourteenth amendment, like I said, it gives equal protection under the law, right? Which which basically grants constitutional protections to corporations. 
Palestine. You can go look at the Dartmouth College versus Woodward case, which happened in 1819. And they recognized corporations. They said that corporations were entitled to some of the protections of the Constitution. In the case of Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, the court found that Religious Freedoms Restoration, go look it up, the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act of 1993 exempted Hobby Lobby from aspects of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act because those aspects placed a substantial burden on the company's owners' free exercise of closely held religious beliefs. So United States courts have extended certain constitutional protections to corporations under various rationales. Uh, an early perspective of this would have been uh, known as the contractual associate or aggregate theory, which held that owners of property have certain constitutional protections even when the property is held by a corporation rather than directly under the owner's own name. So corporate attorney John Norton Pomeroy argued in the 1880s that statutes violating their prohibitions in dealings with corporations must necessarily infringe upon the rights of natural persons. Now, natural person versus a corporate person. Babies are considered to be corporate persons. Why are they not considered to be natural persons? Don't you come from a natural womb? You see, these are questions that got to be answered. Okay? So, you can't get an abortion for a corporate person. Right? But they never said anything about an natural person. Isn't that interesting? Now, like I said, I'm not advocating whether I'm for or against it. Right? I tell you like this, I'm pro-life. I'm also pro-choice. Right? I believe I, I stay out of people's business. Do what, do what you feel is, is under your, the dictates of your own conscience. You got to deal with that. At the end of your day, when you stand in front of your creator, you got to deal with that. Right? But proponents might argue that a judicial person can be a device for exercising shareholders' rights to free speech. Okay? So under this perspective, right, a uh, constitutional right might also extend to other associations of people, even where the association does not take on the formal legal form of a corporation. It might look like a baby. A second perspective known as the real entity or the natural entity view shifts the presumption of corporate regulation against the states. Okay? So treating what they call judicial persons as having legal rights allows corporations to sue and to be sued. It provides a single entity for easier taxation and regulation and simplifies these complex transactions that would otherwise involve the case of large corporations, thousands of people, and protects the individual rights of the shareholders as well as the right of association. Okay. So, for example, the Supreme Court um, has not recognized a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination for a corporation since the right can be exercised only on an individual basis. So why didn't they do that when it came to natural persons and abortion, right? In the United States, um, you can go look this case of United States versus Soporas, it was um, Crest Beverage Company, right? The use of the word taxpayer several times in the regulations requires the Fifth Amendment uh, self-incrimination warning to be given a corporation, right? 
You had to give that to a corporation. So, the, but the court didn't agree. So, corporations and organizations do not have privacy rights under the Privacy Act of 1974. So, there we go again. Babies, because babies are considered corporate, they don't even have the right to privacy. Which means that if um, if you're a corporate person as a baby, and you're still a corporate person, you're still literally a corporate person as a grown ass adult. They're saying that you don't have privacy rights under the Privacy Act, which it defines a citizen of the United States as an alien lawfully admitted for permanent residence. Okay? So all of this is worth looking at when we talk about what the hell is really going on. Now, corporate personhood, right, because… If a fetus – and the real question is, is, does a fetus have a constitutional right, right? It's not about women, and, and trust me, I love y'all. You know, we, we, we need you. The world wouldn't be nothing without a woman, right? We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a woman. But it's not about women's – the women's rights. It's really about the right of the fetus. This is really about the right of whether or not you have a right to kill off stock. You're still a slave. So the real question is, is if you're still a slave and they're telling you you don't have a right, right, As a, if you're a woman, they're telling you you don't have a right to an abortion, you you got to either go to another state or you got to deal with it. They're telling you you don't have that right. So that means that you don't have any rights either. You're still a corporate person, which means they can control your corporate rights. See, the imminent constitutional right, the, the permissive abortion laws, basically wrote that the Supreme Court had barely attempted to show how a right to these rights could be derived from the Constitution. So, so this is what the argument is about. You'll hear this tonight when I play this case, right? Um, and a lot of people who are liberal, right, they basically finding the reasoning in Justice Harris, uh, black majority opinion, Hopelessly flawed, right? They have tried to devise other constitutional justifications for the conclusion. Listen, I, you know, I know that a lot of people, some people are Republicans, some people are Democrats. You got people in the middle. You got listen. The the, the fact is, is that Roe versus Wade has been in place for a long time. So for it to be overturned, it has to be more than about the women's rights. It's about stock. It's about money. That's what this is about. Right? Okay, so so the criticism okay, is the fact that many conservative jurists have agreed. Okay, so it's not just me saying this. With a crucial part of the role reasoning, uh, black men conceded that the case for a constitutional right to abortion, quote, collapses, end quote, if a human fetus counts as a person. Entitled to constitutional protection In that case he wrote the constitution Would guarantee the fetus the right to life He then argued that fetuses do not fall under The constitutional protection So we have to ask ourselves Why don't fetuses have constitutional protection It's it's alive They didn't say nothing about the spirit They didn't say nothing about the soul They're talking about the fetus Right. Very touchy subject, 
right? A lot of people don't like talking about this. This is all over the place right now. Um, because this looks at the 14th Amendment. It looks at personhood. It looks at the Supreme Court and their meaning of a birth. It, it just literally challenges what we know um, to be true. And, and, and here's the thing. If they can do this when it comes to uh, the 14th Amendment and the right for a woman to have a, an abortion, what can they do when it comes to um, your right to freedom of speech, your, your, your right to freedom of association, your right to be free and not be a slave? Right? I mean, corporate persons technically are, are free, but to what aspect are you free? It's freedom ain't all that fucking free, is it? You know, the 14th Amendment, like the Civil Rights Act of 1866, was meant to sustain uh, codified equality and fundamental right of persons, including life and personal security. Uh, these, these were expounded. You can go look in Blackstone's commentaries. All this shit is out there, right? The, the commentaries exposition, which began with a discussion, basically... Um, on unborn children's rights as persons across many bodies of law. Right? This is not, you know, this this is not new. This has been going on for a while. This is why I talked about Margaret Sanger. This is why they did plan, Planned Parenthood because at one point in time they said your stock ain't worth shit. So, so because your stocks ain't worth shit, let's put Planned Parenthood all through the hood and let's kill as many black babies as we can because they are. The lowest stock is what they try to tell you. Now, guess what? Black lives matter. So your stock done went up. But guess what? Black lives matter. White lives matter. Asian lives matter. Indian lives matter. Native Americans lives matter. Moors lives matter. So what the fuck? Everybody's lives matter. Okay? I mean, you, you have to be... You know, for the individual athlete who called me ghetto, <laughs> you had to be an imbecile to 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 even fathom that this information is ghetto. Okay, 1866 declared that unborn human beings, okay, throughout pregnancy, quote, is a person, and hence under civil and common law, to all intents and purposes, a child. As much as, as it's born. See, we didn't. Have you heard anybody talk about 1868? Have you heard anybody talk about that? Right? See, abortion at any stage in early common law was no lawful purpose, right? And functioned as a kind of um, incohate felony for felony murder process, is what they called it, right? Uh, and, and, they, and they called it post quickening. Abortion, right, was an indectable uh, 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 in, in, offense. Now, listen, if a woman goes gets a plan B, right, you, you don't force the pill in her mouth. That was her choice. If she goes and gets an abortion, right, as a man, you, you can't force her to do it, right? So it's a woman's right to choose. The question, though, is that is does that make it a human being? Does it make it a natural person? So when we look at this, and, and I, I want to be clear, at one point in time, 
abortion clinics all around the country were basically telling you in your face that your lives don't really matter. So go ahead and eradicate them. Now they're telling you your life matters. It's illegal to have abortions. And you can't have them. Okay? So the, when we talk about protection of the unborn, okay? these, these protect, a lot of them were swept away by statutes. Okay? Now, in the 1880s, the court reckoned corporations and persons under equal protection in the due process clauses. So the rationale okay, uh, or the interpretation okay, itself blocks any um, uh, analytical path to excluding unborn children. Okay? So the only counter-arguments by any justice in the Supreme Court at that time, you know, we're talking about early 1800s, because this ain't the, you know, this, you know, Roe versus Wade ain't the, this is not the first time this has been brought up, right? Um, but it acknowledged that unborn personhood would be consistent with preserving the nation's long tradition of deference towards state policies treating festicide or feticide. Okay, less severely than other homicides, and guarding women's rights to pressure to pressing medical interventions that would cause uh, fetal death. So, so, and we'll, we'll take a break here in a moment, and um, so this is where we can play this audio. But the Fourteenth Amendment, and I want to be very clear, the Fourteenth Amendment bars states from depriving any person of life. Without due process of law or denying any person the equal protection of the law, it was adopted against a backdrop of established common law principles, legal treaties, and statutes recognizing unborn children as persons possessing fundamental rights. So I know how many people don't like the 14th Amendment. I know. I know. I get it. Right? There, there are states who don't like the 14th Amendment, but the fact is that the 14th Amendment, there had to be something to give equal protection to corporate persons. Because they don't want to consider everybody to be a natural person Because if they did that They wouldn't still be able to have slavery Do y'all understand? Federal slavery To a certain extent It's really strange It's like a, it's like on one hand The government still wants to Own the slaves But they want to emancipate the slaves In their own way But then they want to restrict your rights because now you say, well, since your stock done went up, so since your stock is up, we might as well uh, uh, kill the whole abortion notion. So when we talk about treaties and stuff like that, including the, um, um, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which the 14th Amendment aimed to codify, right, prominently acknowledged the unborn as persons. Go look at it. Right? We've talked about the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Okay. So leaving 18th century English cases later embraced an authoritative American precedent decades before ratification declared the general principle that unborn humans are right-bearing persons from the conception. Nigga, you got rights when you, got you, when you came out of your daddy. <laughs> Basically. 
and even before a nationwide wave of statutory prohibitions of abortion in the mid-19th century, a common law firmly regarded abortion as an offense from the moment it was established by science. When there emerged a new individual member of the human species, a human being, you're a human being. You know, back in slavery times, they used to cut, they used to castrate men. They would cut their balls off, right? Um, a lot of people don't know that the peanut man, was George Washington Carver, I think it was his name, right? He, he, if you ever go listen to old audios of him, he sounded like a woman, right? Because he, he, he never developed um, uh, testosterone because they chopped their balls off at a very early age, Right? So understanding these things, we have to understand that for a long time, before we had abortion clinics, they was doing it to men. They was castrating men. It didn't just start with women because because you need a man to, to help create the child. So they understood this. So so they would break the bucks, cut his balls off. Sometimes we, we're cutting his dick off too. He can't fuck. He can't create babies. He can't get pregnant. He can't. He can't get the woman pregnant, or or we'll let him have a couple of babies that we need to create more slaves, and then we cut his balls off. I mean, come on. This this is this is real shit. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to play the Supreme Court case. I don't know. If we'll get through the whole case because it's a long case. Um, but if you gotta, if, if you wanna hop in the call line, I'll bring you in before we open the case up, um, and we'll play this case, so we can hear what the Supreme Court has to say. But just understand that that these rights must be as comprehensive as those which belong to Englishmen. That's what they said, uh, the right of personal security, the great fundamental rights, the uh, inalienable possession. Of both Englishmen and Americans. Life is the immediate gift of God, a right inherent by nature in every individual. And it begins in contemplation of law as soon as an infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. Okay? It also says that an infant. Is in vitre samere, or in the mother's womb, is supposed in law to be born for many purposes. It is capable of having a legacy or a surrender of a copyhold estate made to it. It may have a guardian assigned to it, and it is enabled to have an estate limited to its use to take afterwards by such limitation as if it were then actually born. And at this point, right? Civil law agrees. Okay. Um, so, and and I, I know I told you I was like cutting the break, but I, I wanna I wanna give you this right quick. The first paragraph. Right. Um, is what it says. It says that the natural right of living, and this this comes from Blackstone. Right. The natural right of a living individual possessing the human nature. Blackstone's uh, points to natural realities. Calling for legal embodiment, including um, a doctrine of English common law, criminal law, mentioned immediately given the section's topic, the right to life, and what may be inferred to from its treatment of natural 
realities and contemplation of law. So what we really are dealing with, man, is what is a person? Person could be a corporation. You know, we're talking about stock here. Person can mean naturally a reality signified in our civilization, an individual substance. The 14th Amendment uses any person without any type of qualifiers, really. Okay? But since the 1880s, courts also include corporations within the idea of it being a person because the meaning of a person in the prevailing linguistic conceptual framework of a legally educated public brought up on the commentaries linked under the law of persons, both natural and artificial. Let y'all soak on that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Open up the call lines and then we'll get into this to this case. Alright? You're right here on the bottom line. It's the new evolution radio network. We go from the bottom to the top. Alright? We'll be right back. Tune in every Sunday from seven to ten PM Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L on the New Evolution Radio Network. Personally, niggas rather work for the man than to work with me. Just so they can pretend they on my level. That shit is irking to me. Pride always going for the fall, almost certainly. It's disturbing what I grow. What I grow. Survey says you not even close. Everybody's bosses till it's time to pay for the office. To them invoices separate the men. From the boys over here, we measure success by how many people successful next to you. Here we say you broke if everybody is broke except for you. Ow. Ain't nothing to it. Real one. Ain't nothing to it. Already rich. That's a lot of brown turn on 
on your Forbes list Frolicking around my compound on my fortress I'll be riding around with my seat reclining Dropping my daughter off at school every morning We slamming our doors I beat your ballin' on these bum whores You ain't talking about nothing, I ain't got no time Gotta relax No dinner stand Mama getting fat want to say that, you know, when we talk about topics like this, you, you can't talk about topics like this without um, dipping into the controversy, right? And, and you even think about things like, um, you know, when women um, are raped, right? And, you know, and that's very unfortunate when things like that happen, right? Um, or, or even, you know, like prostitution, right? When, when unfortunate things happen, Right, and and a woman ends up pregnant. Right, the the right to choice is where is 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 really where the argument comes in for a lot of women. And I understand that. Right, that right to choice. Um, and and so we can't talk about stuff like this without talking about that right to choice and understanding that the right to choice does have a place. Right, and um, in the event of nefarious, unfortunate circumstances, sometimes the right to choice. Um, is a very critical, important right. Now, um, you know, if you go back, there's, there's a case called Hall versus Hancock, which uh, they cite this in a lot of English cases, right? And it formulates um, the doctrine 32 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Right? Um, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, which is in Massachusetts, they, they said that a child is to be considered in essay, basically in being, having a state of being, as a period commencing nine months previous to its birth. They said that the distinction between a woman being pregnant and being quick with a child is applicable mainly, if not exclusively, to criminal cases and does not apply to cases um, of descent, devices, or other gifts. And the child will be considered in being from conception to the time of his birth. So in all cases where it will be for the benefit of such child to be so considered, that's what they said. Okay? Now, in Wallace versus Hodgson, 
It says that a child in vitre, Samire, is a person in, in rerun, right? Basically that the, the civil and the common law, right? He is to all intents and purposes a child as much as if born in the testor's lifetime. Okay? And then in Doe versus Clark, which is directly in point, uh, wherever it would be for his benefits as a child in vitre, asamire, um, to be considered absolutely born. So this doctrine about the real and legal personhood of the unborn from conception was enunciated by the esteemed state chief justice, uh, not as a technical rule for one purpose, but as a fixed principle to all tenets and purposes, that the unborn is a child as much as if the child is born. Right. So you go back to case law. Right, and I'm going past the 14th Amendment. I'm going past Roe versus Wade. You can go to, so you really can go past the Civil Rights Case of 1866, and you can go look at the case law before they had abortion clinics in with, and see what they was talking about. Right? I mean, this, this ain't this ain't an issue that just popped up. Okay. So we'll, we'll take a quick call, and then and then as we take this call, um, I'm going to play a little bit of this case. Um, in this case, is, it is uh, Thomas E. Dobbs, State Health Officer of the Mississippi Department of Health, petitioner uh, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This, was, this case was started in 2021. It was decided uh, June 24th, 2022. All right, so let's take a quick call. Let's go 314-341. You're on the line. You know, I'm listening to you, and I can see that you well read. And I agree with the things that you're pointing out that most people don't have don't have the knowledge because of the ignorance, not because it's denied them. It's there. Mm-hmm. Just don't look at it. I want to. I would like to. You got a web. You got a Facebook page. Because I, yeah, I'm, I'm not privileged of those cases you just got through mentioning where. It considered yeah, a I'm, child of being. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. You want to add me on Facebook? Yeah, what is your Joey? I'm on Facebook. Pardon me, Joey. Joey. J o e y bounce b o u n c e. Um, and, and then it, it should be uh, C e. Okay, I got you. I'll find Joey, you. Joey bounce Ali. I got a super. Yeah. On my, on my, uh, now you know, brother Ali. <clears throat> I like this ruling because it corrects what was done back in the 70s when the cons- well, the courts had no business doing what they had to do. And that's not the only time because courts are not supposed to legislate. The only thing, their main purpose, starting down at the lowest, what we call the inferior courts, is to hear arguments between between complainants. Mm-hmm. They don't have mm-hmm. the right to legal to, to legislate, even they don't. not the right to make rules. That's very true. Now another very thing, true. brother Ali. Absolutely. Another thing. These fifty countries have their own constitution and their own system of government. These countries that we call states. Uh-huh. And the federal government gets its power from the states. Yep. 
but in a simple form. Yeah, and even as a simple form as the federal government consists of the two houses and they these people come from the states. And at one time you were not allowed as a citizen to vote on your federal senator, your US senator. It was assigned by the legislature. And if they get their power from the states, the state legislatures, that means that ultimately the power comes from the people. The people. And what the problem is, Brother Ali, people ain't doing what the hell they supposed to do. That's true. No people. people, people uh, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, think about this. How many people are having this conversation, this type of conversation, where they go back and they look at the old case law. They go back and look at the old Civil Rights Act, and they actually look at the fact that the rights are derived from the people. You know what else, too? The 1965 Civil Rights Act, let's say 66, was about registration. And I get this, because you already had the right to vote in constitutional amendments way before 1965. But what was right. going on in certain countries, in certain areas in these countries, these states, was an infringement to yep. you to be able to vote. What are the word infringement always also pop up at Rhode Island? In the second oh, infringing on, on, on somebody's life. <laughs> it, it pops well, up I, in the second amendment. Think about this. Wait a minute. Hang on. It pops up in the second amendment where you infringe a person's right as the second amendment applies. Now, what this is doing is bringing out hypocrisy. You don't want to be infringed when it comes to voting, but you want to infringe on other people's right to have access the weapons like the Second Amendment states. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, that's where disenfranchisement yep, well, came from. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I like talking to you just from listening to you. I'm going to let you get back to your show. I you know, people well, I, tune I, I, in and hear I, your I show. Highly appreciate, I highly appreciate you coming. And my name is Pianchi, uh, Brother Ali. I'm going to check you out on Facebook. Because like it's very, 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 very seldom do you have people that can speak on these issues from an intelligent rather than an emotional point. You have a pleasant oh, evening, yeah. sir. Thank you, my brother. You too. Mm-hmm. Very good. So what we're going to do is we're going to play this, this audio. I want you to hear this case. Appreciate the brother for calling in. Um, we're gonna play this case because I, I want y'all to hear this case, and I think that it's important that we do hear this case so we can have a good understanding of what the hell they're talking about, right? This is the case that everybody's so up in up in arms about. You know, the beauty of the Supreme Court is that you can actually listen to their cases. So we're gonna play it, right? Um, we probably won't get through the whole case this week, um, so I'll break it down within two weeks. Um, but we're going to play most of it, as much as we can get through. And if you want to holler at me, make sure that you put your hand up, press 1. All right, and we'll be right back. Well, we'll be back after we hear something about this case. Here we go.
We will hear argument this morning in case 19-1392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organizations. General Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They've poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. And 50 years on, they stand alone. Nowhere else does this court recognize a right to end a human life. Consider this case. The Mississippi law here prohibits abortions after 15 weeks. The law includes robust exceptions for a woman's life and health. It leaves months to obtain an abortion. Yet the courts below struck the law down. It didn't matter that the law applies, that the law applies when an unborn child is undeniably human, when risks to women surge, and when the common abortion procedure is brutal. The lower courts held that because the law prohibits abortions before viability, it is unconstitutional no matter what. Rowan Casey's core holding, according to those courts, is that the people can protect an unborn girl's life when she just barely can survive outside the womb, but not any earlier when she needs a little more help. That is the world under Roe and Casey. That is not the world the Constitution promises. The Constitution places its trust in the people. On hard issue after hard issue, the people make this country work. Abortion is a hard issue. It demands the best from all of us, not a judgment by just a few of us. When an issue affects everyone, and when the Constitution does not take sides on it, it belongs to the people. Roe and Casey have failed, but the people, if given the chance, will succeed. This court should overrule Roe and Casey and uphold the state's law. I welcome the court's questions. Uh, General Stewart, um, you focus on the right to abortion, um, but our jurisprudence seems to seem to focus on uh, in Casey, uh, autonomy, uh, in Roe, uh, privacy. Um, does it make a difference that we focus on privacy or autonomy or more specifically on abortion? I think whichever one of those you're focusing on, Your Honor, particularly if you're focusing on, on the right to abortion, um, each of those starts to become a step removed for what's provided in the Constitution. Yes, the Constitution does provide, uh, cert protect certain aspects of privacy, of autonomy, and the like. But as this court said in Glucksburg, uh, going directly from general concepts of autonomy, um, of privacy, of bodily integrity uh, to, to a right, is not how we traditionally, this court traditionally does due process analysis. So I think it just confirms whichever one of those you look at, Your Honor, uh, a right to abortion is, is not grounded in the text and it's grounded on um, abstract uh, concepts that this court has rejected in, in other contexts that's applying a substantive right. You say that uh, uh, this is the only uh, constitutional right that involves the taking of a life. What difference does that make in your analysis? Sure, Your Honor. I, I think it, it makes um, a, a number of differences. One, I, I mentioned two in particular. Uh, one is it, it really does uh, mark out the um, unbelievably profound ramifications of this area, which um, in many other areas, assisted suicide, a, a whole host of important areas that are important to dignity, autonomy, freedom, and in, important matters of conscience. It, it marks it out as one of the unique areas where this court has taken that important issue to the people. And it's, it's something that implicates life. And it, it just, I think, marks off Justice Thomas how um, problematic and unusual and how much of a break 
the court's abor abortion jurisprudence is from those other cases. If we don't overrule Casey or Roe, uh, do you have a standard that you propose other than the viability standard? It would be, Your Honor, um, a clarified version of the undue burden standard. Um, I, I, I would emphasize, I, I think, as Your Honor is alluding to, that no standard other than the rational basis review that applies to all laws will promote an administrable, workable, uh, practicable, consistent jurisprudence that put, puts matters back with the people. I think anything heightened here is going to be problematic. But I, I would say if the court were not inclined to, to overrule Casey, the, the choice would be undue burden standard um, untethered from any bright line viability rule. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to go to a different topic, back to Casey. Yes, sir. I assume you've read Casey for sure. Yes, sir. And uh, uh, there are two parts. Uh, one is they reaffirm Roe. Put that to the side. The second is an opinion for the court, not for three people, but for the court. And that second part is about what stare decisis principles should be used to overrule a case like Roe. And they say Roe's special. What's special about it? They say it's rare. They call it a watershed. Why? Because the country is divided. Because feelings run high. And yet the country, for better or for worse, decided to resolve their differences by this court laying down a constitutional principle, in this case, women's choice. That's what makes it rare. That's not what I'm asking you about. I want your reaction to what they said follows from that. What the court said follows from that is that it should be more unwilling to overrule a prior case. Far more unwilling we should be. Whether that case is right or wrong, in the ordinary case. And why? Well, they have a lot of words there, but I'll give you about 10 or 20. There will be inevitable efforts to overturn it. Of course there will. Feelings run high. And it is particularly important to show what we do in overturning a case is grounded in principle and not social pressure, not political pressure, only, quote, the most convincing justification can show that a later decision overruling, if that's what we did, was anything but a surrender to political pressures or new members. And that is an unjustified repudiation of principles on which the court stakes its authority. And then there are two sentences I'd like to read, because they say they really mean this, the, the court, not just three. To overrule under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to re-examine a watershed decision would subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any serious question. And the last sentence, after they quote uh, Potter Stewart on the same point, they say overruling unnecessarily and under pressure would lead to condemnation, the court's loss of confidence in the judiciary, the ability of the court to exercise the judicial power and to function as the Supreme Court of a nation dedicated to the rule of law. 
That's the opinion of the court. Right? And it's about stare decisis and how we approach it. And I hope everybody reads this. It's at 505 U.S. 854 to 869. All right. What do you say to that? Uh, sure, you're, sure uh, Justice Breyer. I, I would say a couple things. I would say um, we have very closely gone through the factors that the Casey court itself went through in stare decisis. More than half of our brief is devoted to stare decisis. We now have 30 years in the wake of Casey to see what uh, Casey has done and what it hasn't done. Well, it's um, caused some bad things and in the eyes of some people and some good things in the eyes of some people. It, your Honor. All right, all right, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, what I'd emphasize, Your Honor, is that uh, to the extent that, that the – I would not say it was the people that, that called this court to end the controversy. The people, um, you know, many, many people um, vocally really just wanted to have the matter returned to them so that they could decide it, decide it locally, deal with it the way they thought best, and at least have a fighting chance to have their view prevail, which was not given to them under Roe and then as a result under Casey. And, and I'd also emphasize, Your Honor, that on, on stare decisis, just as I said, the last 30 years, workability, um, developments in the law, uh, factual developments that states can't account for, uh, the workability, the undue burden standard alone, many problems. On all the metrics that Casey was describing, or the vast bulk of them, it, Casey fails. And I'd also emphasize this as well, Justice Breyer, that Casey was not um, was, was not a, a great example of simply letting precedent stand. It, it recast Roe's reasoning. It overruled two of the court's most important abortion decisions. Um, it jettisoned the trimester framework of Roe itself and adopted a new standard unknown to other parts of the law. Those are not the hallmarks of precedent, and they failed under this court's story. Okay, can I take it that your answer is yes. You accept the way the special rule, the rule for the rare watershed, the stare decisis principles for deciding whether to overturn such a case as Roe. You accept that, and you think it's met. I would, right? I, I would say uh, yes in part, your, uh, Justice Breyer, and here's what I'd emphasize, is that I, I do think particularly – um, when Casey looked outward and looked to what it see, saw as pressure, there were pressure on all sides. As, as Your Honor noted, this is a hot, difficult issue for everyone. It's, that's why it belongs to the people. And I think the conclusion the court drew from that, that it couldn't provide a, a good enough example, that it would look on principle, those conclusions were, with respect, Justice Breyer, mistaken. And the, the last 30 years has, has not seen any calming of that. It's been very different than some of the others the court's other uh, controversial decisions that, that have seen much more calm. What hasn't been at issue in the last 30 years is the line that Casey drew of viability. There has been some difference of opinion with respect to undue burden, but the right of a woman to choose, the right of, to control her own body, has been clearly set for uh, since Casey and never challenged. You want us to reject that line of viability and adopt something different. Fifteen justices over um, 50 years have, or I should say 30 since Casey, have reaffirmed that basic viability line. Four have said no, two of them members of this court, 
but 15 justices have said yes, of varying political backgrounds. Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I, I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. Some of them, Brown versus Board of Education, it mentioned, and this one has such an entrenched set of expectations in our society. This is what the court decided. This is what we will follow. That, the, that we won't be able to survive if people believe that everything, including New York versus Sullivan, um, I could name any other set of rights, including the Second Amendment, by the way. There are many political people who believe the court erred in um, seeing this as a personal right as, a, as opposed to a militia right. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? Uh, Justice Sotomayor, I, I think the concern about appearing political makes it absolutely imperative that the court reach a decision well-grounded in the Constitution, in text, structure, history, and tradition, and that carefully goes through the stare decisis factors Casey we've laid out. No, it didn't. Casey went through every one of them. You think it did it wrong. That's your belief. But Casey did that. Well, well, and you haven't added oh, much to the discussion in your papers as to the errors that Casey made um, other than I disagree with them, Casey. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, maybe I can, I can highlight two. Uh, Casey gave one paragraph to the workability of Roe. It then adopted the undue burden standard, which is perhaps the most unworkable standard in American law. It gave about three paragraphs, if memory serves, to Reliance, which doesn't account for uh, the last 30 years and the changes that have occurred since Casey. Um, it, it, it gave a brief factual view to things that have changed since Roe. Those, of course, uh, are not going to take account of the last 30 years of advancements in medicine, science, all of those things. What are the advancements in medicine? I think it's an advancement in, in knowledge and concern about such things as uh, fetal pain, what we know the child is doing and looks like and is fully human you know, from a very early in, in regular cases, courts decide whether science fits the Daubert standard. Um, obviously, the, under the Daubert standard, the minority of people, a gross minority of doctors, who believe fetal pain exists before 24, 25 weeks. It's a huge minority, and one not well-founded in science at all. So um, I don't see how that really adds anything to the discussion. We've got a small fringe of doctors 
believe that pain could be experienced before a cortex is formed, does it mean that there's been that much of a difference in spaces? We pointed out as an example, Your Honor, of where Roe and Casey improperly preclude states from taking account for these things. And they should be able to be concerned about a fact of an unborn life being poked and then recoiling in the way one of us recoils. I know what it said about viability in Roe, but was viability an issue in the case? I know it wasn't briefed or argued. It was not an issue certainly the way it is an issue here, Your Honor. I think it was to the extent that the court had to reaffirm Roe, the way to read that as something other than dicta would be done. I'm sorry. I don't know what I said. Was it an issue in Roe? Oh, in Roe. I'm sorry, Your Honor. My understanding is no. The law there didn't have a viability tag that was inserted by it. In fact, if I remember correctly, and it's an unfortunate source, but it's there. In his papers, Justice Blackmun said that the viability line was actually was dicta. And presumably he had some insight on the question. I think I'd add, Your Honor, Justice Blackmun, and I think as well as papers pointed out the arbitrary nature of it and the line drawing problems in there too. And then in Casey, Casey said that that was the core principle or central principle in Roe, viability. It said that after tossing out the trimester formula, which many people thought was the core principle. But was viability an issue in Casey? I don't think it was squarely an issue, Your Honor. Again, it's a little hard not to take the court at its word when it emphasized that viability is the central part of Roe's holding and saying that it is reaffirming that. So we kind of take that as it stands. But the court has not, it did not face a law like this, certainly, Mr. Chief Justice. May I finish my inquiry? Of course, Justice Sotomayor. Virtually every state defines a brain death as death. The literature is filled with episodes of people who are completely and utterly brain dead responding to stimuli. There's about 40% of dead people who, if you touch their feet, the foot will recoil. There are spontaneous acts by dead brain people. So I don't think that a response to, by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain or that there's consciousness. So I go back to my question of what has changed in science to show that the viability line is not a real line, that a fetus cannot survive. And I think that's what both courts below said, that you had no experts say that there is any viability before 23 to 24 months. And what I'd say is this, Justice Sotomayor, is that the fundamental problem with viability, it's not really something that rests on science so much. Viability is not tethered to anything in the Constitution, in history, or tradition. It's a quintessentially legislative line. A legislature could think that viability makes sense as a place to draw the line, but it's quite reasonable for a legislature to draw the line elsewhere. There's so much that's not in the Constitution. 
including the fact that we have the last word, Marbury versus Madison. There is not anything in the Constitution that says that the court, the Supreme Court, is the last word on what the Constitution means. It's totally novel at that time. And yet what the court did was reason from the structure of the Constitution that that's what was intended. And here in Casey and in Roe, the court said there is inherent in our structure that there are certain personal decisions that belong to individuals and the states can't intrude on them. We've recognized them in terms of the religion parents will teach their children. We've recognized it in, um, in their ability to educate at home if they choose. They just have to educate them. We have recognized that sense of privacy in people's choices about whether to use contraception or not. We've recognized it in their right to choose who they're gonna marry. I fear none of those things are written in the Constitution. They have all, like Marbury versus Madison, been discerned from the structure of the Constitution. Why do we now say that somehow Roe versus Casey is Roe and Casey are so unusual that they must be overturned? Well, you're, Justice Sotomayor, I, I would I would emphasize two things. When you're going beyond the Constitution, this court has looked closely to... No, what I'm saying is they didn't go beyond the Constitution. Your Honor, they did not deduce those from the structure of the Constitution. They, they pointed to the 14th Amendment and, and reasoned that um, privacy in Roe, liber autonomy and similar values in Casey led to a right to abortion. That's not how this court traditionally does things, even, including in the vast run of cases that Your Honor ran through. The court looks to history and tradition, and here those decisively reject the proposition that states cannot legislate comprehensively on abortion before, after viability, and all throughout. So it's, it's history and tradition, Your Honor. And I would also add, Your, your Honor, that uh, those, those decisions, a great many of them draw, you know, not just draw from text, text, history, and tradition, but they draw often clear lines, very workable, um, have not led to the many negative story decisive factors that we identify here. General, Um, would a decision in your favor call any of the questions, uh, any of the cases, sorry, that Justice Sotomayor is identifying into question? Uh, no, Your Honor. I, I think for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, I think the vast run of those cases, and some mentioned from time to time, I think Griswold, Lawrence, o Obergefell, these are, these are cases that draw clear rules, can't ban contraception, can't ban intimate romantic relationships between consenting adults, can't ban marriage of people of the same sex, clear rules that have engendered a strong reliance interests um, and that have not produced negative consequences or all the many other uh, negative stare decisive considerations we pointed out, Your Honor. Also, I, I'd add none of them involve um, the purposeful termination of a human life. So those two, those two features, stare decisive and termination of a human life, Your Honor, um, puts all of those safely out of reach if the court overrules here. Okay, so we, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but we really might be making progress. I mean, in the part that, that uh, uh, I read, you know, of Casey? Yes, Your Honor. I think they think go back 150 years, maybe now we can go back 200. They think there have only been two cases, which were what they call the watershed, where the special tough overruling rules apply. 
you want this to be the third? Or do you think there were more? And if so, what were they? Well, Your Honor, I think there's quite a bit of difference. I think the question is never, is it bad to overrule, period? You know, surely sorry. I'm asking you to think, think in their terms. There were two they mentioned. And they don't want Casey to, they don't want Roe to be the third. And now, in your opinion, you just answered Justice Barrett, hey, all these are not rising to that level. Okay? Are there any that do rise to the level, in your opinion? I think, and I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with the watershed characterization, Your Honor. What I'd say, though, I can't think of another that kind of hits the radar. But I'd emphasize that a problem here is we're dealing with a right that doesn't have a basis in constitutional text. And, again, very much in conflict with those values, Justice Breyer. I'm not sure how your answer makes any sense. All of those other cases, Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, they all rely on substantive due process. You're saying there's no substantive due process in the Constitution. So they're just as wrong, according to your theater. No, Your Honor, we're quite comfortable with Washington v. Glucksberg and how it analyzes substantive due process. And it looks to text history. It looks to history and tradition to discipline the inquiry. Well, I mean, in Obergefell, there was no history of same-sex marriage. And I think the court pointed out, look, when we were facing Loving v. Virginia. I'm not trying to argue that we should overturn those cases. I just think you're dissimilating when you say that any ruling here wouldn't have an effect on those. Respectfully, that's – Do you think that no state is going to think otherwise? That no people in the population are going to challenge those in court? I mean, Your Honor, we'll always have a diversity of views, but I think – That's the point. I think that's one of the benefits of our society. Isn't that the point? That there's a diversity of views and people can vigorously debate and make – Exactly, and that's what we're doing under undue burden, but we haven't been doing it on the viability line. And neither one has worked well. The viability line discounts and disregards state interests, and the undue burden standard has all of the problems. How is your interest a religious view? The issue of when life begins has been hotly debated by philosophers since the beginning of time. It's still debated in religion. So when you say this is the only right that takes away from the state the ability to protect the life, that's a religious view, isn't it? Because it assumes that a fetus is life at when? You're not drawing here. When do you suggest we begin that life? Your Honor, aside from – I'm putting it aside from religion. I'll try to – I think there might be – my very best, Justice Sotomayor. I think this court in Gonzales pretty clearly recognized that before viability, we are talking with unborn life with a human organism. And I think the philosophical questions Your Honor mentioned, all those reasons that they're hard, they've been debated, they're important, those are all reasons to return this to the people because the people should get to debate these hard issues. And this court does not in that kind of a circumstance. So when does the life of a woman and putting her at risk enter the calculus? Meaning right now, 
forcing women who are poor, and that's 75% of the population, and much higher percentage of those women in Mississippi who elect abortions before viability, they are put at a tremendously greater risk of medical complications and ending their life, 14 times greater to give birth to a child full term than it is to have an abortion before viability. And now the state is saying to these women, we can choose not only to physically complicate your existence, go to at medical risk, make you poorer by the choice, because we believe what? Sure, Your Honor. I think to, to answer, I think the the question I think you you led with, and, and then I think it expanded on, but it's still on the same issue is as to when does a woman's interest enter? As far as we're concerned, it's there the entire time. Our point is that all of the interests are there the entire time, and Roe and Casey improperly prevent states from taking account and weighing those interests however they think best. We're not general. Are there are there secular philosophers and bioethicists who take the position that? Uh, the rights of personhood begin um, at conception or at some point other than viability? Um, I, I believe so. I mean, I think there's a wide array, I mean, of, of, of people of kind of all different views and, and of no faith views who, who would reasonably have that view, Your Honor. It, it's, it's not tied to a religious view, and I don't think were it otherwise, this court's jurisprudence would, on this issue would run right into some of its uh, religious exercise jurisprudence. General, um, Justice Breyer started with stare decisis, uh, an important principle in any case. And here, for the reasons that Casey mentioned, uh, especially so, um, uh, to prevent people from thinking that this court is a political institution that will go back and forth depending on uh, what part of the public yells loudest and, uh, and, and preventing people from thinking that the court will go back and forth depending on changes to the court's membership. And what strikes me about this case, um, and, and, and you come here very honestly um, saying, you know, we want you to discard uh, the entire setup, and then even if you don't do that, we want to discard the viability line, which you've acknowledged again today, Casey says, is the, the heart, the central principle of Roe. And so uh, usually there has to be a justification, a strong justification in a case like this beyond the fact that you think the case is wrong. And I guess what strikes me when I look at this case is that, you know, not much has changed since Roe and Casey that people think it's right or wrong based on the things that they have always thought it was right and wrong for. So the, 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 the rationale behind those cases uh, has something to do with the autonomy and the freedom and the dignity of women to pursue their lives as they wish, to protect their bodily integrity, to make the decisions that are most fundamental to the course of their lives 
And and always in those cases, there was an understanding that there were important interests on the other side in protecting life or protecting the potential for life, whether people saw it one way or the other way, and that there was a difficult question here and a balance to be made. And, I mean, it strikes me that people, some people think those decisions made the right balance and some people thought they made the wrong balance. But in the end, we are in the same exact place as we were then, except that we're not because there's been 50 years of water under the bridge, 50 years of decisions saying that this is part of our law, that this is part of the fabric of women's existence in this country, and that that places us in an entirely different situation than if you had come in 50 years ago and made the same arguments. So I guess I just wanted to hear you react to that. Of course, Justice Kagan, thank you. I I would emphasize a couple things, Your Honor. The fact that so much time has passed, let's say nothing has changed. That's not a point in Roe and Casey's favor. They have no basis in the Constitution. They, They adopt a right that purposefully leads to the termination of now millions of human lives. If nothing had changed, they'd be just as bad as they were 30 years ago, 50 years ago. And now we just have decades of damage, and we have a situation where nearly 30 years after Casey, the court unfortunately divides over what Casey, the lead on, on in the abortion area, even means. The lower courts are left not knowing what to do. As I, I think, And I think kind of a fundamental problem here is I think, as Justice Gorsuch mentioned, um, emphasized in his his uh, opinion in, in June Medical that the problem for lower court judges is the Constitution doesn't give them an answer to this. There's no neutral rule of law. So judges, unfortunately, have to look within themselves. And that's just never going to solve this issue. But if the matters return to the people, the people can deal with it. They can work. They can compromise and reach different solutions. But if we don't do that, we're just going to have all this sort of damage. And at some point, it's appropriate for the court to say enough, as it has in some of its, its the great overrulings. Um, in, in Brown and in other cases where it said, this is just enough. Justice Harlan had it right in dissent in Plessy um, when he recognized that, that, that uh, you know, all are, all are equal. And he, similarly here, the state should be able to recognize, hey, there are real values on both sides here. We, we, we think that this one slightly outweighs, that we think that this one slightly outweighs, or we think that there's some balance to be drawn here. But if the court doesn't do that, Justice Kagan, it's just going to be uh, continued damage, and the court will continue to plunge in this political issue. I apologize, Mr. Chief Justice. I've gone no, over. no, that's all right. I have just a few little, uh, well, not little, I hope, uh, uh, questions. Um, and first gets back to the issue of liability. Um, you know, in your petition for cert, your first question, and the only one on which we granted review, was uh, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. And then I think it's fair to say that when you got to the brief on the merits, you kind of shifted gears um, uh, and talked a lot more about whether or not Roland Casey should be uh, overruled. And I wanted to give you a chance to explain that. Sure, Your Honor. Um, So a couple points. You know, at at the petition stage, we were, of course, identifying, we identified for the court three questions. We emphasized, as you do at the search stage, hey, this is important. Only this court can resolve it. Um, we emphasized, I believe it was five times, that the court was at the least going, need to, going to need to reconsider, revisit, or reevaluate its precedence, and we asked that the court to at least get rid of a viability line or any suggestion of a viability line. So uh, we added, however, and we had to take account of the reality that 
this argument has not fared well in the lower courts. It's lost in every court of appeals. So, you know, we raised the issue in addition, but once the court granted only the first question, we presented every argument as we, you know, signaled we would present the full-blown constitutional merits argument with that fundamental question. So I'd emphasize that, Your Honor. It was kind of the shift you go from search stage to merits stage. The court granted one question. That question fairly includes what is the correct argument. Well, it fairly includes the broader arguments you raised. I'm not suggesting that. But on the other hand, it presumably included the viability question as well because that's what you talked about in that one sentence. And we've addressed that as well, Your Honor. What I'd emphasize here is that the merits arguments of, you know, the validity of Roe and Casey as an original matter, is there a viability rule based on the Constitution, those are not that complicated or lengthy. The harder questions are, you know, should the court overrule and take that momentous step? And that's why we devote a lot of space to that very important issue. We respect stare decisis and have walked through all those points. But, again, focusing on the question presented and arguing, presenting our best arguments for that, that's what we've done, Mr. Chief Justice. On stare decisis, I think the first issue you look at is whether or not the decision at issue was wrongly decided. I've actually never quite understood how you evaluate that. Is it wrongly decided based on the legal principles and doctrine when it was decided or in retrospect? Because Roe, there are a lot of cases around the time of Roe, not of that magnitude, but the same type of analysis that went through exactly the sorts of things we today would say were erroneous. But do we look at it from today's – we look at it from today's perspective. It's going to be a long list of cases that we're going to say were wrongly decided. Well, I'd say, Mr. Chief Justice, that you can look both – was it wrong at the time? Has it been unmasked as wrong by new understandings, new knowledge, any developments? But I don't think, as I think the colloquy – my colloquy with Justice Barrett indicated, the court won't have to be looking at much other – many other areas because this is an area that has a uniquely problematic set of stare decisis considerations. A lot of other controversial areas or once controversial areas are quite settled, clear rules, and don't have those considerations against them. So really, by overruling Roe and Casey, the court won't have to go down that road. And a lot of those decisions are quite readily groundable in history, tradition, and traditional factors, Your Honor. Thank you. Justice Thomas? Justice Breyer? Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor? Kate? I just wanted to get your quick sense of how your intermediate positions would work. You know, if basically the viability line was discarded and undue burden became the standard overall, a standard that, according to you, is an unclear one, what that would leave the court with going forward. You know, I'm just sort of thinking about the great variety of regulations that states could pass. So whether one is 15 weeks and one is 12 weeks and one is 9 weeks or variation across a wide variety of other dimensions, what would that look like coming to the court? How do you think we would be able to deal with that or how would you counsel us to deal with that if the court were to go down that road? Well, I think this is not to push back against the end, and I will answer your question, Justice Kagan, but part of why we counsel to overrule full scale is that that's the only way to get rid of a number of the problems that I think Your Honor is alluding to. And that's that when you have the undue burden standard, 
it's it's a very hard standard to apply. It's not objective. The court looks to the record in each case and what's going on. I mean, the, the court in Casey itself said under this record, this is not an undue burden. Um, you, you couldn't say necessarily for certain that a certain number of weeks, one place would be an undue burden, but would be okay another place. But again, that is the world we have under Casey. So if the court upholds this law under the undue burden standard, it would be carrying forward those features, which uh, I, I, and I hope you, I've answered your question, but I think that's one of the very strong reasons to just go all the way and overrule Rowan Casey, Your Honor. I, I, Justice Gorsuch? Justice Taylor? I want to be uh, clear about what you're arguing and not arguing. Yes. Um, and to be clear, you're not arguing that the court somehow has the authority to itself uh, prohibit abortion or that this court has the authority to order the states to prohibit abortion. So I understand it, correct? Correct, Your Honor. As I understand it, you're arguing that the Constitution is silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Is that accurate? Right. We're, we're saying it's left to the people, Your Honor. And so for the, uh, if you were to prevail, um, the states... Uh, majority of states or states still could or and presumably would continue to freely allow abortion. Many states, some states would be able to do that even if you prevail under your view. Is that correct? That's consistent with our view, Your Honor. It's, it's one that um, allows all interests to have full voice and, and many of the abortions we see in certain states that I don't think anybody would think would be moving to change their laws in a more restrictive direction. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Justice Barrett? General, I have a question that is a little bit of a follow-up to one that Justice Breyer was asking you. That's about stare decisis, and I think a lot of the colloquy you've had with all of us has been about the benefits of stare decisis, which I don't think anyone disputes. And, of course, no one can dispute because it's part of our stare decisis doctrine that it's not an inexorable command and that there are some circumstances in which overruling is possible. You know, we have Fussy, Brett Brown, we have Bowers versus Hardwick to Lawrence. Um, but in thinking about stare decisis, which is obviously the core of this case, how should we be thinking about it? I mean, Justice Breyer pointed out that in Casey, and in some respects, well, it was a different conception of stare decisis insofar as it very explicitly took into account public reaction. Um, is that a factor that you accept? Are you arguing that we should minimize that factor? And is there a difference that of rules, it is true that Casey identified Brown and West Coast Hotel as watershed decisions, but is there a distinct set of stare decisis considerations applicable to what the court might decide as a watershed decision? I don't think there should be a distinct set of, of, of considerations there, Your Honor. I think what I, what I emphasize, um, and, and just to make sure, I, on, on the kind of legitimacy, the court looking outward, I, I think Casey was unusual in that regard. I think it was a mistake, and I think it's something that is uh, kind of in conflict with this uh, court's um, structure and approach as an independent branch, looking to the Constitution rather than looking without. And I think that's one reason why traditionally the court is, is in some of its greatest overrulings, it's, it's not looking without. It's saying this was wrong. It was wrong the day it was decided. We know it's wrong today, and it's led to all these terrible consequences. We should get we should get rid of it. Um, I. So I think that that was an unfortunate break, and I think the court 
even if the court were to still look at legitimacy, though, Justice Barrett, I think the court could very, very powerfully say our legitimacy really derives from our willingness to stand strong and stand firm in the face of whatever is going on and stand for constitutional principle and follow our traditional stare decisis factors to overrule when it's appropriate. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Ms. Rickleman? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Mississippi's ban on abortion two months before viability is flatly unconstitutional under decades of precedent. Mississippi asks for the court to dismantle this precedent and allow states to force women to remain pregnant and give birth against their will. The court should refuse to do so for at least three reasons. First, stare decisis presents an especially high bar here. In Casey, this court carefully examined and rejected every possible reason for overruling Roe, holding that a woman's right to end a pregnancy before viability was a rule of law and a component of liberty it could not renounce. The question then is not whether Roe should be overturned, but whether Casey was egregiously wrong to adhere to Roe's central holding. Second, Casey and Roe were correct. For a state to take control of a woman's body and demand that she go through pregnancy and childbirth with all the physical risks and life-altering consequences that brings is a fundamental deprivation of her liberty. Preserving a woman's right to make this decision until viability protects her liberty while logically balancing the other interests at stake. Third, eliminating or reducing the right to abortion will propel women backwards. Two generations have now relied on this right, and one out of every four women makes the decision to end a pregnancy. Mississippi's ban would particularly hurt women with a major health or life change during the course of a pregnancy. Poor women were twice as likely to be delayed in accessing care, and young people or those in contraception who take longer to recognize a pregnancy. To avoid profound damage to women's liberty, equality, and the rule of law, the court should affirm. Counsel, I just have one question. I assume you, from your brief, you're relying on an autonomy theory. Both bodily integrity and the ability to make decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, Your Honor. Shortly, some years after we decided Casey, we had a case out of South Carolina, I believe, involved a woman who had been convicted of criminal child neglect because she ingested cocaine during pregnancy. And her case was post-viability, so it doesn't fit in the facts of this case. If she had ingested cocaine pre-viability and had the same negative consequences to her child, do you think the state had an interest in enforcing that law against her? 
the state may have, Your Honor, the state can certainly regulate to serve its interests in fetal life and in women's health. Those particular laws tend to undermine both of those interests because we would deter women from seeking prenatal care, which is counterproductive to both their but health. But the pre-viability as well as post-viability. No, Your Honor. The, the court has been clear that after viability, states can prohibit abortion except to say... No, I mean, the, the in my example of criminal child neglect. I understand you. your argument is about abortion. I am trying to look at the issue of bodily autonomy and whether or not she has a right also to bodily autonomy in the case of ingesting uh, an illegal substance and causing harm to a pre-viability fetus. Your Honor, of course, those issues aren't posed in this case. And again, I would say that the states can certainly regulate throughout pregnancy, both before and after viability, um, to preserve uh, fetal life and to preserve the woman's health. The court has said, however, there's, there are other constitution, constitutional issues at stake. For instance, in the Ferguson case, um, the states still can't violate women's Fourth Amendment rights. But again, that's not what this case is about. This case is about a ban on abortion that the state concedes is weeks before viability. And the court has been clear for 50 years that the one thing that states cannot do is to take the decision completely away from the woman until viability. But until that point, it is her decision to make, given the unique physical demands of pregnancy and the life-altering consequences of pregnancy and having a child. Thank you. You, the point you made about the impact on, on women and their place in society, those, those were certainly made in Roe as well. What we have before us, though, is a 15-week uh, standard. Are, are you suggesting that the difference between 15 weeks and viability are going to have the same sort of impacts as you were talking about or as we were talking about in Roe? Yes, Your Honor, I believe they would because um, people who need abortion after 15 weeks are often in the most challenging circumstances. As I mentioned, there are people who have made, perhaps had a major health or life change, a family illness, a job loss, a separation, young people or people who are on contraception or pregnant for the first time and who are delayed and recognizing the signs of pregnancy, or poor women who often have much more trouble navigating access to care. And if they're denied the ability to make this decision because there's a ban after 15 weeks, they will suffer all of the consequences that the court has talked about in the past. And in fact, the data has been very clear over the last 50 years that abortion has been critical to women's equal participation in society. It's been critical to their health, to their lives, their ability to pursue- I'm sorry, what, what kind of data is that? I would refer, uh, refer the court to the brief of The Economist in this case, Your Honor, and it compiles data um, showing studies based actually on causal inference showing that it's the legalization of abortion and not other changes that have had these benefits for, for women in society. Um, and again, those benefits are uh, clear for education, for the ability to pursue a profession, um, for the ability to well, have- Well, putting that data um, aside, if you think that the issue is one of choice, um, uh, that women should have a choice to terminate their pregnancy. Um, that supposes that there is a point at which they've had the fair choice, uh, opportunity to choice. And why would 15 weeks be an inappropriate line? So a viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. Um, but if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time. 
for, for a few reasons, Your Honor. First, the state has conceded that some women will not be able to obtain an abortion before 15 weeks, and this law will bar them from doing so. And a reasonable possibility standard would be completely unworkable for the courts. It would be both less principled and less workable than viability. And some of the reasons for that are without viability, there will be no stopping point. States will rush to ban abortion at virtually any point in pregnancy. Mississippi itself has a six-week ban that it's defending with very similar arguments as it's using to defend the 15-week ban. And there are states that have banned... Well, I know, but I'd like to focus on the 15-week ban because that's not a dramatic departure from viability. It is the standard that the vast majority of other countries have. When you get to the viability standard, we share that standard with the People's Republic of China and North Korea. And I don't think you have to be in favor of looking to international law to set our constitutional standards to be concerned if those are your... share that particular time period. I think there's two questions there, Your Honor, if I may. First, that is not correct about international law. In fact, the majority of countries that permit legal access to abortion allow access right up until viability, even if they have nominal lines earlier. So, for example, Canada, Great Britain, and most of Europe allows access to abortion right up until viability, and it also doesn't have the same barriers in place. What do you mean, even if they have nominal lines earlier? Some countries, Your Honor, have a nominal line of 12 weeks or 18 weeks, but they permit legal access to abortion after that point for broad social reasons, health reasons, socioeconomic reasons. So their regimes really aren't comparable, and they also don't have the same types of barriers that we have here. So if the court were to move the line substantially backwards, and 15 weeks is nine weeks before viability, Your Honor, it's quite a bit backwards. It may need to reconsider the rules around regulations, because if it's cutting the time period to obtain an abortion roughly in half, then those barriers are going to be much more important. Thank you. Ms. Zuckerman, I have a question about the safe haven laws. So Petitioner points out that in all 50 states, you can terminate parental rights by relinquishing a child after abortion, and I think the shortest period might have been 48 hours, if I'm remembering the data correctly. So it seems to me, seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasized the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood, would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities. It also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly. There is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. However, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice or focus would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why didn't you address the safe haven laws and why don't they matter? I think they don't matter for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, 
um, even if some of those laws are new since Casey, the idea that a woman could place a child up for adoption has, of course, been true since Rose. So it's a consideration that the court already had before it when it decided those cases and adhered to the viability line. But in addition, um, we don't just focus on the burdens of parenting, and neither did Roe and Casey. Instead, pregnancy itself is unique. It imposes unique physical demands and risk on women, and in fact has impact on all of their lives and their ability to care for other children, other family members, on their ability to work. Um, and in particular, in Mississippi, those risks are alarmingly high. It's 75 times more dangerous to give birth in Mississippi than it, uh, than it is to have a pre-viability abortion, and those risks are disproportionately threatening the lives of women of color. So are you saying, I, I mean, actually, as I read Bowen Casey, they don't talk very much about adoptions, this passing reference that that means out of the obligations of parenthood. But as I hear this answer, then are you saying that it's the right, as you conceive of it, is grounded primarily in the bearing of the child, the caring of pregnancy, and not so much looking forward into the consequences on professional opportunities and work life and economic burdens? No, Your Honor, I believe it's both, and, I, and that is exactly how Casey talked about it. It talked about the two strands of cases that supported the right. One was the strand of cases supporting um, bodily integrity, and it cited to cases like Kazan and Riggins versus Nevada. And the second was the strand of cases supporting decisional autonomy, and specifically decisions related to childbearing, marriage, and procreation decisions like Griswold Loving. And so it's really both strands that we're relying on here. May I ask you a question about stare decisis, counsel? Um, your, your colleagues on the other side have emphasized that um, Casey rejected Roe's trimester framework and replaced it with an undue burden standard. They argue that the undue burden standard was uh, not well known to the law before that. Uh, and, and then they argue that the undue burden standard has evolved over time, too, in ways that the court has found difficult to agree upon. In Hellerstadt, for example, they, they, they point out in their briefs that uh, the court seemed to suggest that a court should consider both the benefits and the burdens associated with the uh, proposed restriction. In June Medical, more recently, uh, the court splintered on, on, on that same question, uh, whether benefits could be considered or only burdens. And so the argument goes that this has proved to be uh, putting aside all the other um, obviously difficult questions in the case, that, that, that the standard itself has proved difficult to administer and that that is relevant to the stare decisis analysis. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. Yes, Your Honor. The first point I'd like to make is the undue burden test is not at issue in this case. That is the test that applies to regulations, not prohibitions. And the state has conceded that this is a prohibition. In fact, that's the title of this law is an act to prohibit abortion after 15 weeks. And the only thing that's at issue in this case is the viability line. And the viability line has been enduringly workable. The lower federal courts have applied it consistently and uniformly for 50 years, and the Fifth Circuit here below had no difficulty striking down this law unanimously, 3-0. So it's been an exceedingly workable standard. And if I may return to your question, Mr. Chief Justice, a reasonable possibility standard would not be workable. It would ultimately boil down to an argument that states can prohibit 
a category of women from exercising a constitutional right merely because of the number of people in the category. And that's just not how constitutional rights work. A state would never say that it could ban religious services on a Wednesday evening, for example, simply because most people could attend religious services on another night of the week. So I actually just wanted to, uh, that that's helpful. I want to make sure I understand what you're telling me, counsel, that, that if the court were to, in this case, step past viability and apply undue burden, the undue burden test to uh, regulations prior to viability, you would agree with the other side, I, I think, that that's not a workable standard. Is, is that is that a fair understanding what you're you're telling the court? No, Your Honor. I, I you believe think that would be workable. I believe, if I may clarify, I believe the undue burden test has been workable for regulations. I, I, I understand that. I, I, if, if it were to apply, if the court were to, and I thought this is what you were saying in response to the Chief Justice, but maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, please correct me if I am. But it, what would what is your argument against applying the undue burden standard prior to viability? If the undue burden standard, as this court laid out in Casey, which includes the viability line. No, no, no. I'm asking. I know, I know, we're fighting the hypothetical here, counsel, right? Except the hypothetical. And hypothetically, the court were to extend the undue burden standard to regulations prior to viability. Would that be workable or would that not be workable in your view? Without viability, it would not be workable, Your Honor, because it would ultimately, again, always come down to a claim that states can bar a certain category of people from exercising this right simply because of the number of people in the category. And that's not a workable standard, and it's not a, a constitutional I appreciate that clarification. Thank you. All right, all right, we back. There's a, there's a lot. Next week, we'll pick up on the last hour of this, and I'll bring some more information to you. This is a lot of information to go through. So uh, we'll do part two next week um, to Roe versus Wade, Supreme Court case, and Dobbs versus Jackson. Um, like I said, this, this is a lot of information. So if you've got the opportunity to sit in the whole time tonight, I say, I say great. If you did not, make sure you go back and listen. Like I said, this is, you know, I present this information from a very unbiased position uh, because, you know, the fact is, is I'm a man. I don't I don't have a, a right to conceive a, a child. I don't have a womb, right? So this, this is a very controversial topic, but it is best for us to be educated on it and to understand, understand and understand the position that these people are taking. Um, we're making these decisions and to look at it from a very holistic perspective. All right. Um, with that being said, call out to open if you want to holler at me before I get out of here. Um, 516-531-9318. If not, you know, you can go to makemorecommerce.com where I can be reached at. Holler at me over there. All right. So uh, I will say peace to the gods and I will catch y'all on Thursday for the Metaphysics show. Uh, we got to pick up on the Law 1 Part 2 because I did not get to that last week. Um, had some issues with the, with the server. So we'll pick up on that this week coming up and we'll do Part 2 on Sunday. If you need to get with me in the meantime, make more commerce.com. I'm going to say peace to the gods. Have a great week. You're listening to Evolution Radio. Visit makemorecommerce.com for more remedies with Joey L where remedy meets preparation.